Well, hello and welcome to the Catherine Plano podcast, where we share tips, tricks, tools, and strategies that you can implement in your life for massive improvements. Every week, we have change instigators, compelling creators, and interesting humans who are breaking the cycle of convention and redefining success one mission at a time. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning, connection, and resilience into your life. Now let's jump into your weekly dose of practical goodness. narcissists are naturally drawn towards strong people, successful people, smart people, opinionated people. You know, they want that limelight. It looks good for them to be with someone like that. Where we see the quote weak part come into play is after the years of abuse and literally stripping of that person's identity by a narcissist. Then we have at the end of the relationship, somebody whose self-esteem, um, self-identity is just absolutely crushed. Ever found yourself captivated by charm that later revealed itself as a facade? Well, today we explore narcissistic relationships with psychologist Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. Despite minor internet disruptions, Dr. Zuckerman's brilliant insights shine through. So imagine the allure of someone who showers you with affection, but then their true colors emerge self-centeredness, lack of empathy, and an insatiable need for admiration. Could this be narcissistic personality disorder? Dr. Zuckerman guides us through manipulative tactics, unveiling emotional turmoil, discover stages from intense beginnings to isolation, and how survivors find healing through exit strategies and support networks. So join us now for profound insights into narcissistic relationships and the path to recovery. Enjoy. Well, today or this afternoon or this evening, it really depends on what side of the world you are sitting in right now, We have an amazing guest for you today, and we have the lovely Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to deep dive into this topic, but before we do, we always love to ask our guests to share this story. So, Jamie, what inspired you to do what you do today? Uh, So I've always been fascinated by the brain um, ever since I can remember how it worked and why it worked and just how amazing it is. And so um, I knew I wanted to do something that had to do with the brain. Uh, and that's kind of how it evolved. Initially, it was um, more kind of neuropsych stuff. And then it translated into therapy, but more kind of how the brain worked in terms of our behaviors. Um, and then I, um, yeah, it just kind of flowed from there. I started seeing people mostly with um, actually neurological diseases because I worked in a neurology practice. So I was still kind of part of that brain stuff, right? And then uh, after that, I went into practice for myself and slowly started seeing these patterns of behaviors in these toxic relationships um, and kind of 
it turned into that. And then here we are. (laughs) And so when you're talking about these behaviors, what specifically are you talking about? Just generally speaking, I just I think it's fascinating how we develop patterns of behavior over time and how we kind of navigate our world based on that narrative, even if it's not healthy or effective or helpful, and that we really have so much control over certain, you know, not obviously not everything in our life, but when you break it down to kind of in the moment, we have we very much have choices that we can make in any given moment. And that's defined by our behaviors. And so I just, I think it's very cool that we can always figure out what we can control in any given moment. And I think it gives people, um, I would say kind of less hopelessness because they feel that they have this control over the, you know, what they do and their responses. You mentioned stories before. How do we, uh, cause I know we all get caught up in our stories and I think it would take a level of consciousness, right, to be you're talking mm-hmm. about choice here because quite mm-hmm. often, or, you know, from my understanding, we're, we're operating at uh, unconscious uh, programs all the time. Mm-hmm. So what's mm-hmm. the trick to become more conscious so that we do have a choice on changing our stories? Yeah, I love that question. So um, like you said, it involves us being aware, right? And until we become kind of um, experts in making healthier choices, that then it can go back onto automatic pilot, or it can kind of go, but right, but to switch it in the moment, you do you have to be aware. So what I like to do with people is first, I help them identify like what their patterns even are, because we can't address them if we don't even know what they are. Um, and oftentimes, people will, you know realize that they're doing things they didn't even realize they were doing. And then once you have that awareness, you can start to acknowledge when you do it. But the ones that are kind of more, as you say, kind of unconscious and then this kind of um, automatic response that we have, one of the things I work with patients on is helping them stay present in the moment and be very mindfully aware of their surroundings, using all their senses, certain grounding techniques to bring them into the present moment so that they realize that there is that pause. And I always say the power is in the pause. So they can realize that they're in that pause and in that moment, make a healthier decision, whatever, whatever that may be. Um, it doesn't have to be anything significant. It could be, you know, choosing to eat fruit instead of candy for breakfast, right? So, something like that. Um, but really get them to slow down being grounded in the moment to make that decision. When you said that, I just got a picture of myself sometimes when I get stressed without even acknowledging my stress, right? I end up in the pantry mm-hmm. and yes. staying in the pantry for no reason. And it's, yep. it wasn't until um, my uh, business partner said, do you realize how often you go into the pantry? And I right. said, no. So I needed the feedback yeah. because I wasn't mm-hmm. even aware of it. And the moment mm-hmm. he gave me that feedback, I become became consciously aware that I was doing yes. that. So I yes. think feedback is also really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, and, and the other thing too to keep in mind is, and this is what I see more so in relationships, but you know, when you shift that pattern, right, for yourself, then you start to feel more in control, right? And then you start to feel better about yourself because then you're making healthier choices. And if you catch yourself doing it again, you can kind of identify what led you there. It was before it was so quick. When you're changing patterns in relationships, 
you know, there's another person in there. And so when you start to act differently or make different choices, you throw the other person off balance and it becomes a little bit trickier when it involves other people. But for, for us ourselves, when we make these choices, it just gives us, you know, it gives us not just a sense of control, but structure, stability. It gives us motivation to want to keep doing it again because we see results from whatever the positive changes that we made. So, so with working with your clients, and I mean, there's lots of people in relationships. So how would you go about it when you it involves another person? Because I know for me, mm-hmm. um, it's always been uh, we've had a conversation and give me the feedback. So if this program keeps, you know, a behavior, let's say, uh, that keeps coming up that I'm not consciously aware of, please let me know and let me know when I do it so that mm-hmm. I can start acknowledging it and seeing yes. when specifically I'm doing it. Is that, is that something yes. you, and it's not an easy thing to do, right, to give feedback? No, because some people, you know, they, they say they may want that feedback, but when it happens in the moment when they're really stressed out or it makes them feel vulnerable or it makes them feel agitated or picked on or whatever the case may be. So I think, you know, we have to be, we have to know our audience, right, and know how we tell them that they're doing it again. Um, sometimes I, I do this thing with people if they get, you know, offended or they feel bad about themselves, I have them come up with a word that's totally irrelevant to the situation, like, you know, coffee, And so that word represents, oh, I'm doing it again without actually saying you're doing it again. Um, And I think that helps too. The the other thing though that's interesting that happens is when, even if the other person is actively involved in helping you, let's say, not go to the pantry anymore, right? And somebody's saying, oh, you're doing it again, you're doing it again, and you're fine with that. This is going to be a weird one to use an example on, but let's just say, um, this is a stretch, but let's just say that... um, Let's just say that when you would go into the pantry, one of the things you would do is you would cook these lavish meals, let's say, in the middle of the night because that's just what you did. And because your partner now is stopping you from doing that, which is a good thing, so you're not eating in the middle of the night, the other thing that starts to happen, again, it's a weird example, but the other thing that starts to happen is now there's no meals cooked for the week. So now, right, as a result of changing your behavior, you've changed the dynamic within your relationship. Now, that may seem benign, but let's say the other person just wasn't the person that cooked. And so now what? And so maybe there's an, you know, an argument about who's going to cook or there's roles are now shifting and, and the other person didn't sign up for that. And so everything's really kind of intertwined and interconnected. So when somebody starts, let's say, um, I work with them on people pleasing and they stop people pleasing. It may look good on the surface, but in the end, you're really kind of redoing dynamics that have been in place for a really long time. Mm, I've experienced that, uh, mm-hmm. where I've I've made a conscious effort of uh, really working on my boundaries um, because, and I'm a recovering people pleaser, so I have not recovered, not recovering. I'm a, <laughs> I'm getting there, but it's true. It does change the dynamics yeah. because then you don't realize that all of a sudden, I'm like, why are you behaving this way? Because you've always said yes, or you've yes. always, you know, uh, what's wrong? Why are you being yeah. rude? Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's Guilt. true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And what they'll do, either conscious, either consciously or not consciously, it depends. They may do things like, "Why are you being so rude? Like, why are you doing this? I need your help. You've always helped me." In an effort to push you back to your original positioning, right? Um, and again, sometimes it's not malicious, but sometimes it is. And sometimes it's they're unaware of it and you have to bring it to their attention. And sometimes relationships just don't work when one, you know, don't work anymore 
relationships, friendships, you know, romantic relationships, business associates, it may, sometimes it just doesn't work anymore when one people starts to shift those boundaries. So true. So true. And so before we came on the show, we were talking about a topic that we have not spoken about on this show for over seven years that we've been doing the show, which is narcissistic personality disorder. So I'd really love to unpack that because I'm sure um, our audience would love to learn more about it or understand it. So what is it specifically? So, um, you know, it's, it's in the last, I'd say, four or five years, it's become this big buzzword, especially on social media. Um, but, you know, it's also led to a lot of confusion between, you know, narcissistic traits or narcissism versus narcissistic personality disorder. So narcissistic personality disorder is a pervasive style of personality, a pervasive way to interact with the world, meaning it's not just in certain situations. It is how this person interacts with the world around them at all times. With narcissistic personality disorder, one of the key elements of that is a lack of empathy um, and I'll talk about kind of what what types of behaviors lead to that, but lack of empathy, lack of accountability for the impact that their behaviors have on others, a sense of entitlement or grandiosity with very little work or effort to get them to the level that they think they should be at um, or that they think that they're deserving of. Um, things like, you know, very controlling of others, very manipulative um, of situations so that they can get control and power. It's very much about gaining control and power. Um, and it's, you know, it can, it is, I'm not going to say it can be, it is extremely toxic and can be very dangerous to be in a relationship with somebody who has that personality um, for, for a whole, you know, a whole host of reasons. And, are these individuals aware? Because I've heard people say, oh, "I've got a narcissistic mother." I'm like, "How do you know that?" Like, what, what, what specifically? And they, I guess that the one of the things they did say was they were manipulative in their approach. Um, so, thank you for explaining that. So, do the mm-hmm. actual individual know themselves that they have this behavior that plays out? Because the behavior is really not the person, is it? The behavior is really, or, or is it, a, or is it in this case the actual person? Um, so they're aware that they are, they, so it, it's kind of like if you, they don't present for treatment. So it's not like they're coming into therapy saying I have narcissistic personality disorder, or they're coming in because they don't know what's wrong. And the therapist says you have narcissistic personality disorder and they continue for treatment. They don't go to treatment. Um, they actually don't even recommend it for couples therapy. You never go to couples therapy with a narcissist. They never present for treatment. Nothing's wrong. It's everybody else's fault. Um, and they don't think they have a problem. So if you give them a diagnosis, they're going to naturally think that that doesn't fit them because they're above a label They're They don't, that's not them. If, if people have a problem with them, it's, it's their issue, not, you know, not the person themselves. So yes, they are aware if they are told that they are harming people, they, they there is no empathy. They don't care. They will do whatever they need to do to get whatever it is they need to get in a particular situation. Um, and so that's one of the hardest things for survivors of narcissistic abuse to kind of really sit with is this idea that, yeah, they knew what they were doing. And the reason why I say they know what they're doing, and this isn't just my opinion, but it's it, because especially with covert narcissism, so, the, so the, the abuse that you see behind closed doors, these are people who will present as charming, philanthropic, 
um, gregarious, like, you know, just very funny life of the party, couldn't hurt a fly, just funny. Everyone wants to be near them. And then as soon as they get home, the abuse starts. Or as soon as their partner hangs up the phone with their family member, the abuse starts. Or they select birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, important events to start trouble. They know exactly what they're doing. And so because of the way they select when and how they exhibit those behaviors, um, the difference between that, let's say, and let's say somebody who grew up in an environment where they were around toxic patterns. And so naturally we, we, we repeat what we see, we model what we see. And so I've had a lot of people that I would see that have patterns on the surface that look narcissistic, but when brought to their attention and their awareness of how those behaviors come off either onto me or to other people, and they see that it's not healthy and that it's hurting others, they want to change it. Somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, that that's not something that would cross their mind. That's not what they intend to ever do. So what do you do in, so if you find yourself in a relationship and for our audience, if they are in that type of relationship, whether it's family Mm -hmm. or personal, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Well, so if, if you're in, it's tricky. It depends on who the relationship is with. It depends on if there's children, if they're, if you're married, if you're living together, if you have the flexibility or the luxury of finding a different job if it's somebody that you work with. But, you know, ideally, the longer you stay in a narcissistic abusive relationship, the worse it gets. You know, the, the worse it gets. That's what's going to happen. So ideally, you know, you you want to leave. Um, they, they're not going to change. And so it becomes a matter of if you want to stay in the relationship, how best can you stay in it and protect yourself? emotionally and physically, sexually, financially, all of the above? Um, or how can we put together a plan to have you exit the relationship safely? Because it really is the only type of breakup that requires an actual exit plan um, from numerous domains. And um, particularly when there's children involved, because family courts really do not do a lovely job of protecting the abused in a course of abusive relationship because it's very um it's very nuanced it's very manipulated it's very controlled so it's hard to see the impact of it um so with family members you know um it's difficult it's boundaries it's very significant boundaries but it depends on the actual relationship whether it's something boundaries meaning you cut them out completely boundaries meaning you only contact them certain times, you don't answer when they call, you know, you kind of dictate when you want to interact with them. Um, But really, it has to do with boundaries if you can't get out. Is this something that you were born with? Or is this a conditioning that takes place in your imprinting phase as you depending on the environment? Because you know, when we look at Mm -hmm. attachment styles, for example, you Mm -hmm. know, abandonment or anxious attachment, all these different styles, that obviously it had an impact on um, you know, what environment we were in, in our imprinting phase. So sure. is that the same thing? 
with narcissism? Sure. So there's there's research um, that says that, you know, if you look at the brain differences between a narcissist and someone with narcissist personalities so or non-narcissist, you'll see differences. But whether those differences are, you know, from birth or, you know, our brains are, are malleable and it kind of molds over time with our experiences. Um, but the interesting thing about narcissistic personality disorder is if you have, let's say, a narcissistic parent or two narcissistic parents, it doesn't mean that you are then going to develop narcissistic personality disorder. From a pattern development perspective growing up and, and being around this, really it, it's the result of inconsistent parenting, um, you know, that kind of hot, cold, uh, never knowing what you're going to get, walking on eggshells, um, or um, the golden child where, you know, you can do no wrong in your parents' eyes. There's no consequences to your actions. Therefore, rules don't apply to you. Laws don't apply to you. And you grow up thinking that this is how everybody is going to treat you. So there's that end of it as well. Um, there could be parents that are extremely overbearing, over-controlling, very nitpicky to the point where the child feels they can't breathe or make their own decisions. So it really depends on kind of, one, the experiences, and two, kind of what the child does with them. Um, whether it's going to develop into, you know, healthy patterns, dependency, people pleasing, narcissism, um, you know, affect instability, it really just depends on the actual person themselves. And do they, because, um, you know, they, uh, well, it d- depends on who you listen to and what research you look at, where they quite often they'll say, oh, you attract the opposite, you attract what you must learn. So if you're mm-hmm. a people pleaser, will you attract like a narcissistic individual is that does it work in that sort of same way or? so normally so normally for anything else i would say yes right but with narcissistic personality disorder it's a myth big misconception that those with npd only go for dependent pleasing even weak or or kind of you know no backward that's it's it's actually not true what ends up happening is narcissists are naturally drawn towards strong people, successful people, smart people, opinionated people. You know, they want that limelight. It looks good for them to be with someone like that. Where we see the quote weak part come into play is after the years of abuse and literally stripping of that person's identity by a narcissist. Then we have at the end of the relationship, somebody whose self-esteem self-identity is just absolutely crushed. So um, I think what ends up happening is there may be somebody who's a people pleaser, let's say, um, in the beginning of the relationship, the narcissist is going to cater to whatever it is that they think that you want, you know, because in the beginning with a love bombing, we hear about love bombing, that love bombing stage in the beginning where they're going to act a certain way and kind of it's a facade, it's, it's a mask, Right. It's not who they are, but they are very good at making you think that they are that person so that you feel like it's your soulmate. You connect. It's like a puzzle piece. Like, how could you fit so perfectly? And the reason is because they're, they're, they're assessing exactly what you need. So if you're a people pleaser, they're going to create such an environment that either looks like, you know what? You take care of everybody. I'm going to take care of you, right? To, to kind of appeal to that or. They're going to say, you know, you're such a caretaker. You're so good to me. I love you so much. I love when you, you know, bring me dinner every night and it, it makes me feel so special. They're going to do what they need to do. And so I, I think in this particular case, I don't necessarily think it really matters, to be honest. 
so I, I believe that every relationship is like that. I call that, you know, you, you're in that conscious relationship and still mm-hmm. until you become really comfortable with one another and then you become unconscious in that relationship. Yes. And then so yours, so they, they, they're actually saying all the things that you want to hear basically, yes. right? But then you're saying mm-hmm. um, when the honeymoon is, you know, period is over, what mm-hmm. they do is they revert back to who they truly are. Correct. Right. Correct. And at that point... What happens usually is the person is so, um, they have conditioned them so well in such, with such strategy and such purpose that that person starts to think like, well, what, wait, did I do something? Cause it's so, when it first happens, it's so, uh, people describe it as otherworldly that 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 first argument or that first fight that has nothing to do with anything and it seems so they just switch on you and it's so bizarre feeling it's like a surreal feeling so they they're so thrown off guard that they don't even think to themselves okay this is I'm out right they think like god what must i have done that's so upsetting to them for them to behave like i've never seen them like this and they slowly start to believe that these things are their fault um, which is why a lot of times you have these really strong people in these relationships and you have to say, well, why can't they just leave? Because it's not that easy because they, they really make you believe that you can't and that they've gaslit you, which like, we can talk about so much that your perception of reality, you don't trust. And so you depend on them to kind of define your world around you because they've taught you not to trust yourself. So how specifically do they guess like you? So things like in the beginning, it'll look like, um, you know, you know, your friend, let's say you're going out for dinner with your friends. So, you know, your friend, Jamie, I, I know, I know you're really close with her. I know she's been your best friend forever, but there's just, there's something about her I don't trust. I, I'm not quite sure what it is, right? So they start to isolate you slowly. Um, you know, are your parents always that controlling? Do you let them talk to you like that? And you're like, wait, are they controlling? I never, I never what? And then start to pull things out and kind of make it so that you see that. Or, you know, it could, it, it's something as, as, as mind numbing as let's say that they told you they, they couldn't go out with you that night, right? Because they were sick and your friend sees them out at the restaurant and your friend takes a picture and sends it to you and you show it to them and you say, you know, you were out last night. I thought you were sick. And they said, that's not me. And you're like, wait, what? Yes, it is. No, no, it's not. And it's so bizarre that it's it's kind of like you start to doubt yourself and they say things like, you know, you're crazy or, you know, you need to get your eyes checked or why are you having people take pictures of me? What's wrong with you? Why are you stalking me? You have problems. And they switch it around so that before you know it, you're sitting there defending yourself about your, quote, stalking behaviors and your, quote, insecurities when really it had nothing to do with that. So um, they're just very, very good at that, very skilled. So if they uh, they sound very intelligent in what they do and it's it's and they never admit that they have uh, anything that is wrong with them. So mm-hmm. are we saying that there's a lot of narcissistic individuals out there who are not being treated, who will continue to do what they're doing because they don't see that there is anything wrong with them? Correct. Yeah. And, and so here's the thing that happens. So, and I get pushed back on this a lot on, especially on social media. When I talk about this, how it's narcissist, it's so rare. It's so rare. 
Well, here, I mean, personality disorders in general, yeah, because, but oftentimes they don't present for treatment. So that's part of it. The other part is, you know, of course it looks rare because where, where are you getting your numbers from? There's no, you know, no one's going for treatment. It's all secondhand. There's no, of course it looks rare, but I mean, when you have people hearing these things and listening to podcasts like yours and hearing other survivors' stories, and it it's a playbook. It is so specific. So for as unique as they may think they are, the behaviors and the strategies are so, so specific. And it's a, it's like a playbook. It's a blueprint. And when you hear it and you've been through that, it's like this light bulb goes off and it's kind of like, oh my God, wait, that's what I've been dealing with all these years? I thought I was crazy. And, and, you know, they will make you, it's crazy making. Um, I think there are so many people out there that are walking around undiagnosed. Absolutely. Um, I think that it's important that we educate people on the difference between somebody who's just a jerk and somebody who's a narcissist um, or somebody who cheats on you, but isn't a narcissist. Um, you know, there, there's all of that as well. Um, narcissistic personalizer is very specific and it's not episodic. It's, it's chronic and it's all the time. And is it a learned behavior? Because when we're talking with uh, some of the, the traits, I know some people that have some of those traits, but not all of mm-hmm. them. And I, yep. I, I see that their parents are like that. So yeah. it's almost like a learned trade uh, to manipulate mm-hmm. an outcome, let's say, uh, so that works in their favor. But I wouldn't say yeah. they're narcissistic. Uh, right. But it, so would you say that there's like, you know, from like a scale from one to 10, that you, there, there is a variable that sits within the actual. So I think that, the, I think that, uh, yes and no. I think that we all have narcissistic tendencies, right? So you and I speaking right now in our field of expertise, our narcissistic traits are, let's say, higher, right? But when we get off this call, I'm not going to talk like this to my child's pediatrician about their, I don't know, something that they have because I know nothing about it. I'm going to get myself back in check because that's, there's, you know, you, you know, the, the etiquette, you know, the, the proper interaction style. Um, you know, there are some people who are more confident than others that may come off that way. The key difference is, you know, you're talking about people that are manipulative or, you know, to get their way. The key difference between that and someone who has narcissistic personality disorder is the degree to which they feel empathy, the degree to which once they are aware of their behaviors, how much accountability they take for it. So if I manipulate somebody because I really want something and I like just go after it and I know, I know I, I really just like ran someone over to get it and I got it and now I'm like, oh God, I feel so guilty for what I did. A narcissist isn't going to feel that way. So just because somebody is a manipulative to get what they want, you know, you have to look at, are they accountable for it? Do they know what they did? And if they know what they did, do they have empathy? Is there remorse? Is it something they'd be willing to change if they know how much it hurt the other person? So there's all those variables at play. Um, I think it has to do with the, the level of awareness. I take it back. The level of willingness to change once you have the awareness that you're harming other people. So, a lack of empathy would that have a? Uh, is that to do with the brain, or is that part of the personality trait? 
So there's research for both. Um, I, you know, I research will show that there's different parts of the brain that light up differently for people that are, let's say, who have antisocial personality disorder, which is, you know, sociopathic. Um, you know, I, I think it comes from, I look at it more from the standpoint of kind of patterns of development that there were either no consequences to their actions. They never got in trouble that, you know, their parents bailed them out all the time from whatever situation they were in, even if it was out of love, right. Even, even if they didn't mean it in, you know, in any negative way, but nonetheless, that was the consequence of it. Um, you know, I think it really is your kind of conditions into that, or you just block it out. You just genuinely don't care if you harm other people, either because caring about other people got you in trouble or hurt growing up. So you learn to kind of block that out because emotions were dangerous, feeling emotions were dangerous. Um, you know, and you, and you kind of took that and it continued into adulthood even when it didn't work anymore. Wow. And so people that have got a uh, narcissistic personality disorder, you don't really work with them you work with the partners or the the yeah. the recipient yeah, the and so yeah. once they acknowledge wow i'm in that type of relationship what happens then what what kind of work do you do with them then so i would say and you know it's when i say this i don't mean it like it's a cool thing but one of the most rewarding things i think working with patients who are either in family dynamics or or you know intimate relationships when they have that aha moment of, oh my God, like this is my, this is, this is it. Like this is, I could never figure out what this is. This is it. This is what's going on. Um, One, the great thing about that is that once they see it and they see the blueprint, you can't ever unsee it, which also means you are now no, you're still going to be affected because there's still so much trauma with this, even post breakup, post separation abuse. But at that point, there is a part of them that knows now that it's going to be different, that they're on the other side of it. And even though it's going to be a struggle, they can't unsee it. They will not be blindsided anymore. They understand the behaviors. So once you gain that understanding, there is this sense of empowerment that comes with it. Um, you know, that, okay, I know what's going on now. I can predict now on my birthday, I'm going to be proactive and block their number. So that I don't have to deal with the phone calls, right? So you take a little bit more control or you know that um, because it's not your night to have the kids and let's say um, you are going on vacation with your new girlfriend and your ex-wife who is a narcissist knows you're going on vacation, it's that's going to be the time where, you know, somebody, one of the kids gets sick or there's a flat tire, something's going to happen. So you learn not to let them know that maybe you tell your parents or at least somebody knows you're away. Right. So those types of things to help you gain control. Um, And so when, when I have people realize that that's kind of where they're at, um, that's where we kind of start the work of, are, are you working to learn how to stay in this are you working to leave? Majority of people say they're, they're working to leave. And so I help them, you know, formulate a plan as long as that may take how to set boundaries, what the, what the result of those boundaries are going to look like, um, you know, teaching them to regulate their nervous system because they have been experiencing such chronic trauma for so long 
that their nervous system is completely dysregulated. So breathing and sitting with the discomfort, um, learning grounding techniques and, and kind of welcoming that hypervigilance and learning to, you know, sit with it rather than escalate. It's all of these things, teaching them, you know, how their bodies are, are physically are wrapped up in this, um, helping them figure out who they are, because I will have people come out of these relationships and say, you know, I, I don't even know what kind of music I like. I don't know what kind of clothes I like to wear because their identity has been given to them. It was stripped and then it was given to them. And so they have this narrative they've been following for so long. They don't know who they are without that toxic person, um, which is also very upsetting. Um, if there's kids involved, it's even more upsetting to realize that, you know, they were, they were and are incapable of ever being the type of spouse parent you hoped you had. And there's a lot of mourning that takes place. Yeah, wow. Because I think that in relationships too, you you t- you tend to hang on to the potential of what that human being can be. Oh yeah, because, yeah. And they'll dangle that for you. They will every so often. They'll go back to that love bombing stage just enough to keep you roped in. So you were saying that there's there's really two options. They stay in the relationship, and and I'd love to really unpack that. How do you do that, uh, knowing now that you're yeah. with? someone that's got a a narcissistic personality disorder or leave. And even that could be scary because um, if they're all about control, I can't imagine what would happen for them when their partner goes, well, I'm leaving you, how that plays out as well. So I'd love to hear about the both scenarios. Yeah. So I'll start with the leaving. So um, we know from research in domestic violence that the most dangerous time um, for the person leaving is when they're leaving. Um, that's the highest time for violence so and physical violence. So you really need to, that's where that plan comes in. You must have a safety plan. You must use your resources. Um, you know, there's so many things that go into it because you're absolutely right. It is terrifying to leave. And, you know, from a narcissist perspective, you're, you're an object. You know, you're not a person with feelings and emotions and opinions and needs. You're an object. You're their object. So if you leave, you know, you are rejecting them. And anytime a narcissist feels rejected or abandoned, you're going to get that narcissistic rage. And that's when it becomes becomes scary. And so you really need to make sure that you have a safety plan in place. Um, you need to make sure that you have money because chances are, you know, even if you put aside a little bit every week for three years, um, because they will financially abuse you. They will make sure that, you know, nothing's in your name or that you don't know your bank accounts or there's money that you don't even know where it is. Um, they just control all of that. So there's that aspect of it. Um, and the other thing too is it takes people on average seven tries, I think it is, to actually leave a relationship. And so I tell people that if you leave and come back, leave and come back, don't look at it as a failure. Look at it as a necessary step to the next time when you finally leave and stay for good. And someone with narcissistic personality will not, they won't let you leave easily. There's a couple of things that could happen. They could, you know, be violent, right? Um, chances are they will smear your character. They will say things about you that are untrue. You're crazy. You're an addict. You're abusive. You're whatever. Um, try to get you fired from your job. They will do everything they can because you left, you, you left, you rejected them. Um, no awareness or accountability for why that happens. Um, and they'll do everything they can to, to ensure that they punish you. One of the things that will happen 
and this is very common, is, you know, narcissists, when it comes to infidelity, it's very common. And it's not just one person. It's usually multiple people. They always have somebody waiting, waiting, or, you know, whenever they, they want to, because it gives them that control and that supply. Um, chances are they will position themselves in such a way to be with somebody pretty darn soon after and blast pictures all over social media or whatever, making them look so loving and adoring so that people say, well, I mean, look how great they are. I mean, why would she leave, you know, or why would he leave? Something must be wrong with them. Um, and it's all on purpose. So leaving is very difficult for its own reasons. Staying, um, usually what happens is people that aren't ready to leave yet take the route of, no, I want to figure out how to stay. And there's still some hope that maybe the person's going to change. And maybe when they threaten to leave, the person says, no, let's go to couples therapy. I promise I'm going to change. And that works for maybe a little bit, but then it, it doesn't and they never intended it to. Um, and I, I can tell you that I, in my experience working with people whose goal it is to stay, one of two things happens. Either that goal doesn't last very long and they realize that they need to leave for the sake of their safety, their children's safety, um, or unfortunately they stop coming because I think there's, you know, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt in staying with somebody who's abusive, not because you're making up, they, it's very hard. It's so intertwined. It's so, um, tricky to get out of. And, you know, that's why people, when they say, well, why can't they leave? There's so many reasons. And so I really try to make people feel as comfortable as I can with no judgment, um, you know, and really kind of walk them through that to help them get to that place. But I think sometimes people that aren't ready to leave sometimes aren't ready to do the, the work and that's okay. You know, you have to be ready to do this. Um, and if you're not sometimes and you try, it can actually backfire. So you really want to make sure that, that, you know, you're ready. So when you're talking about that doing the work, you're talking about even as simple as, because I'm sure there's people that's going to be watching this or listening to this interview and probably find that they're in that predicament themselves where they're in a yeah. narcissistic relationship and not ready to leave. Uh, but there are some things that they can do and put into place, right? So you were talking yeah. about setting yes. boundaries. But are you saying yes. that by, even by setting boundaries that could rock the boat as well? Or oh, what, for sure. Yeah, For sure. When you, when you, you know, when you set boundaries with the narcissist, they don't then like a non-narcissist say, okay, I'm, you know, listen, we can't control anyone's behavior and boundaries are for us, right? To let people know what we're willing to tolerate and not tolerate. And that's what the other person reads. With a narcissist, you telling them what you're willing to tolerate and not, they don't, they don't care. That's irrelevant to them. So they'll just figure out other creative ways to get their needs met whether it's by, you know, buying you gifts, whether it's by raging, whether it's by locking you out of the house, whether it's, you know, picking the kids up and leaving and not coming back for a week and not telling you where they went. I mean, there's there so many different things that, that, that I've seen and, and things that, that they'll, they'll do. Um, so I, you know, setting boundaries. Yeah. There's, there's that part that, it's going to come with some sort of comeback in some way. It's so, so I find it so fascinating because they're attracted to you because you're a strong individual. Yes. They enjoy watching them. They enjoy watching you break down. 
But then they get so, pleasure so, but then from if you that. were to go back to yeah. becoming that person once you because you were yeah. saying once you see it's hard to unsee, yep. right? So yep. then if you're yep. going back to that person that once, oh gosh, I now know that I've allowed this to happen. I'm just playing this out, mm-hmm. right? I've allowed yeah, this yeah, to yeah. happen. So I'm gonna put that some boundaries in place and mm-hmm. um I'm ready with whatever comes my way. Do they not does that not flip their script kind of thing when you you are back to who you were when they first met you? Yeah, that's a that's actually a really great question. No one's ever asked me that. Um, let me figure out how I want to phrase that. So once once they once a once a narcissist um has completely just you know, stripped you of your identity, your yourself, all of that stuff. Um, and then you gain that strength by figuring out their patterns. In the narcissist's mind, you're you're quote damaged. Like there is no returning you to wherever you used to be. They they look at you as bad. You're not strong, you're bad. You're not um, you know, confident, you're disrespectful. So it, it never goes back to that. They view your boundaries as an inconvenience. Right. So that you they will never see you the way that they first saw you ever. No, because the way they saw you in the beginning is this idealized version of, of you know, what they want and, and what they see you as. And as soon as you breathe wrong, blink wrong, don't text them back within the five minute time that they feel is appropriate, you're, that's it. You're bad. And so that's why it, that eventually always happens because it, it, it's, it's set up that way. It's always set up that way for the person to be idealized and then fail. You have failed to meet my expectations. So there is no hope in fixing up a narcissistic relationship. Really what you're saying is that there is, are there any good stories where people actually, you know, it does work out and the narcissistic individual, no. Okay. I hate, you know, and well, let me, let me, let me give a small caveat for that. So, you know, as a psychologist, my job is to help people. My, my job is to help people live fulfilled lives and live the best that they can and help them. And, and, you know, so for me to say that takes a lot, <laughs> right? It, I'm not saying that lightly. It takes a lot for me to say that that's number one. Number two, are there people that have narcissistic personality disorder that will say that they are, um, you know, former narcissists, that they are healed, that they are self-aware, you hold that self-aware narcissist? Maybe. But here's what I, this again, this is my personal opinion. I'm sure there's people that will disagree with me on this. I think when they say, quote, self-aware narcissist, two things are happening. One they didn't meet diagnostic criteria to begin with, but maybe they had a lot of narcissistic patterns and traits they picked up, picked up from growing up, but they realized how unhealthy it was and how much they were harming people and they wanted to change it, which by definition would not be narcissistic personality disorder. Or they're saying they're self-aware and helping people because it's just another way to manipulate and get supply. Um, so I think that's probably what we see. Could I be wrong? Yeah, of course. I, I, I just, um, I have not personally seen a relationship with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder ever work in a healthy way, ever. 
So I'm thinking, um, so in I do a lot of corporate work and in, in uh, large corporations, a lot of the times they get you to do psychological assessment tools. Like where you do an assessment, they have these tools where you, and then they kind of like assess. So is there anything like that? Because I'm just saying, I wonder how that plays out. Is this only in relationships or does this play out in all environments? Oh, it, it, well, oh. that, so with, with the narcissistic personality disorder, because it's a personality disorder, it's pervasive. It's in all domains of their life. It's how they interact with everybody in their life, from a waiter to the electrician that comes to their house, to their spouse, to their child. The difference is they will act however they need to act in a particular situation to get what it is that they want at any given time. So they may look really lovely outside, but they're not, but that doesn't mean they're just like that with you. They're also putting on an act of being lovely with the neighbor. So it's, it's always kind of on if so to speak. Um, it doesn't, it, it, if it's, if they're just a jerk with you, then it's not a personality disorder. It's, it's toxic dynamics between those two. So there's no way because obviously they don't they don't put themselves forward for any help because they don't think there's anything wrong with them. Right. But is there anything like so going back to working corporations where they a lot of the executives they go get these psychological assessments? Is it does it ever show up in anything yeah. like that? So um, I know I don't know the names you would know much better than I. I know with some of the corporate um, assessments that are given, there are certain indicators or characteristics or personality styles that, you know, it'll show up higher for um, than others. Um, you see this in forensic evaluations. It will show up um, for, for custody evaluations or for court ca- any type of court case Um Anything involving, you know, legal issues, you'll, you'll, uh, very, very often seen in custody situations. Um, you know, assessments for um, if somebody is on trial for murder, so, you know, you may have a psychologist consultant come in and, and do the assessment. So you'll see it come up in those on certain indicators for sure. Wow. And then so then when it comes up in those kinds of situations, um, are they then more open to do the work if they want? No. The only way they would do the work is if it in some way benefits them, like shortens their sentence or gets them to have to pay less alimony or less child support um, or less custody, whatever the case may be. But no, otherwise, no. This is fascinating. And I'm really curious, what made you deep dive into this specific topic? Yeah. So I, so two things. One, when I started working in private practice um, and I started seeing mostly women for anxiety and depression, um, there was, there was this, not often, but enough where it became noticeable to me, this pattern of relationships. And I had learned, and I think, you know, most psychologists will say this too, at least my, you know, I don't know if it's different now in training, but when I went to grad school, we learned all about borderline personality disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder was, quote, so rare. And we just learned about it as it's somebody who's really full of themselves, you know, really kind of just entitled and grandiose. Um, But it was never, no one ever talked about it in terms of what it looks like in an actual day-to-day relationship. And I started hearing these patterns. And then when the pandemic hit, um, 
because people were home and not able to leave or go anywhere, you had this massive increase in domestic violence rates. You had this massive increase in child abuse rates. And um, no one was reporting anymore because the children weren't at school. Like, right. And so people weren't going to work. People were losing jobs. Substance abuse went up. So it was just a really bad situation all around. And people were turning to social media, talking about their stories. And people, it just started kind of clicking for people. Um, but I had been, I mean, obviously doing the work a while before that, um, but people were way less educated about what it was. And so when I, when the, I would tell them what it was, it was like this, you know, this, this light bulb moment. And I just, I realized there were very few people that maybe they specialize in it, but I didn't know about them. There were very few people at the time that I knew that were experts in this, um, who were very good and kind of in my mind, the kind of gurus of this work. And so through social media, I just kind of started talking about it more and educating people more because, you know, it's almost like preventative medicine. You help them get out of it. Yes. That's where I'm at with people when I work with them. But my goal was to educate people enough who weren't patients of mine what the signs are, the red flags are of love bombing and all that stuff. So you don't get into it in the first place um, because any of us can get into it. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how psychologically savvy you are. It doesn't matter. Everyone's at risk. So, um, you know, that's kind of really where it started. And um, I've just had so many people that the stories they tell me, it's like, just when you think you've heard the worst, it's like, you just, it's, it's like really unfathomable. And so in addition to that, ironically, my best friend was going through a divorce and thankfully now his divorce was going through a divorce with a narcissist. And I had a front row seat to all of it. And it was absolutely horrific. So I, I was like, I can't, I can't have people in these situations. It just was like, it, it like just, it's heartbreaking. So that's kind of where it came from. And do you think that, because you were saying it's kind of like a buzzword, a lot more people are talking about it yeah. is because people now have can put it a name to what is yes. taking place. And so a lot more people be coming forward with their stories. The ones that are coming forward with their stories, obviously they're the ones that have left the narcissistic relationship. Is that correct? Sometimes, or sometimes they're still in it, trying to get out of it, um, you know, and, and they're, they're asking for help on how to do that. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is, is that there is a distinct difference between when people talk about, let's say their spouse who's a narcissist versus somebody who's talking about their spouse that they think is a narcissist, but isn't you, the details are so drastically different. And it's not to minimize what the other person's going through because they're still in abusive situations. Um, that are non-narcissistic, which look very different than narcissistic abuse. Um, and I think that, you know, we have to be careful how we use the word because we don't want someone who's a survivor of narcissistic abuse for their experience to be minimized um, by the incorrect usage of the word. And, and you know, and I, listen, the other thing I get a lot too, and I think it's it's tough for me as a psychologist, is that, you know, people will say, you know, you're stigmatizing mental illness. You're stigmatizing people with narcissistic abuse. And I understand where they're coming from. Um, however, I'm really just reporting behaviors, right? Like I, I haven't said, I'm really just reporting what they do. And it's kind of like, it, it's, it, it is, that it, it sounds that bad because it is that bad. 
Um, you know, and they'll say, well, you know, they're wounded too. I get that a lot. And I agree they're wounded, but you know what? A lot of us are wounded, but we don't yeah. act that way. Yeah. True. Right? And I did, um, that did cross my mind. You know, a lot of us are wounded, but we don't act that way. And I'm sure they're wounded. I, I get that. But I can't say to my female patient in front of me who's telling me that their spouse rapes them repeatedly and has turned their children against them and, and you know, has completely ruined their, their job, their career, that, you know, well, I know, but they're wounded. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to say that. And so it starts to sound ridiculous. And, and I, but again, I understand where people are coming from with that. And it's a very delicate line. That's why I say it's really not easy for me to, to say that, but I, I worry that if we cater to that during a time when someone's trying to get out of the relationship, they're going to feel compelled to want to help and stay and fix that person and give them hope when it's not there. And that's so true, right? That's I think that's human nature. We want to help others. Um, of course. You know, especially yeah. if we know that they're wounded and this right. is where we would just allow things to take place because we want to help them and, and um, yeah, that's really interesting. But I, I do hear that word being bantered around, like she's so narcissistic or he's so narcissistic yeah. a lot. Yeah. But never thinking yeah. about the actual person that's going through it where we're not really understanding the meaning of the word. Yeah, absolutely. So it, yeah. I mean, somebody somebody could be selfish, but just because you know they are so filled with anxiety and worry that they're not paying attention to the details of anyone else's life. So they appear like they don't care and that they're just in it for themselves when really their heads swimming with anxiety, right? If they knew that that was the impact they were giving off on people, they'd be devastated. That's the difference. And I guess too, it's it, well, just the way that you're speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding that there must be layers. So let, let's say that somebody's riddled with anxiety and has panic attacks. I, I guess you'd have to work through that first before you, or depression or something like that, before they build the plan and and build that muscle to start building those boundaries or or is it the other way around I think it depends on the person but one of the things that that I will have people do you know if let's say that they're so depressed or so anxious that cognitively they're not able to process information then I would regulate you know their nervous system first we would work on that all of that so just to get them present so they can even attend to the information that's coming in otherwise there's no point um you know, and then I would, I would, I would maybe say something along the lines of like, how, how do you feel people are responding to you and take it from that way? And, you know, they'll say people saying I'm selfish and I'm not, and I say, well, what do you think you're giving? And, you know, I kind of just give it to them to kind of figure out and come to on their own. And I kind of guide them with that. And when they realize like, oh my God, is that how I'm coming off? Well, I don't, I don't want that. Then that kind of motivates them to, in that moment, give them that pause. It, it's like motivating enough because they have empathy. They don't want to harm the other person. They don't want to hurt them. They don't want to come off as selfish. So, uh, and I'm, I'm conscious of time and I'm conscious of your time. I respect well okay. your time. Just one last question is how do you yeah, help sure. somebody regulate what they're experiencing? So I first let them know it's not their fault, period. It's not their fault. Um, and the self-blame, the guilt, the shame that they feel have been manufactured for them for so long as a, as a method of keeping them stuck. Um, that, you know, that, that hypervigilance that they feel, that constant 
on edge feeling, walking on eggshells. Like you're, it's like a light switch. It's like, there's no dimmer. It's like, it's just on, um, helping them understand that the reason why they are responding to things like that, uh, the reason why their heart's racing, why their blood pressure is high, why they're getting headaches, why they're not sleeping, why they feel frazzled, confused, you know, foggy all the time is because your body appropriately so has been living in a state of I'm in danger. I need to protect myself at all times because it did, it had to. And so you've been living in this fight or flight mode for years, sometimes decades. Um, it, your body doesn't know any different. And so when you remove the trigger, so you remove the, the scary thing, right. Or the, the, the threat, your brain is still responding. Your body is still responding as if you still are in danger. And so you have to really kind of work with them to rework their breathing, right. And kind of rework their sleep hygiene, what they eat, what they do with their anxiety when it comes up for them and things like that. And explain to them that it's a normal response to your body doing what it was supposed to be doing. Thank you for that. Look, this is such a fascinating topic and I'm sure yeah. we can go on for a couple of hours. <laughs> I'm conscious of your time. So the way that we love <laughs> to wrap okay. up the show, I think we'll have to get you to come back. It'll be interesting to see sure. what our audience, I'm sure they're going to be reaching out. I'm sure it'll be just interesting what they have to say. Um, so the way that we love to wrap up the show, Jamie, is to always ask our guests to leave three shiny golden nuggets. So what three shiny golden nuggets would you like to leave for our uh, audience today? Yeah. So for those of you who this resonated with or who are going through this in any capacity, um, I already said this one, but the first thing, it is not your fault. It is not your fault. Make sure that you find some sort of support network. It doesn't have to be a friend or a family member. It could be a therapist that is well-versed in narcissistic personality disorder. It could be your accountant to help you figure out how you're going to set money aside. It could be your primary care doctor going and, you know, having them run your labs and, and figure out, you know, why everything is so out of whack. You know, just whatever you can to feel good, to give you a sense of control and some sort of plan. That's number one. Um, number two, you want to get in therapy. You want to get in therapy with somebody who understands the nuances of this behavior. Because a lot of the times the way we go about treating anxiety, depression, or treating, um, you know, somebody's in an abusive relationship, but it's not narcissistic, we would handle that very differently than somebody who's in a narcissistic abusive relationship. So make sure you, you know, go online, look up, you know, people in your area, ask them questions. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. Um, you know, that's, that's the other major thing. Um, you know, and, and the other piece of it too, and this kind of just merges them all together is that when, when you're in these relationships, um, a narcissist will do a very good job of trying to isolate you. Um, so I really encourage people to seek out support within their families of the people they've been isolated from, because I promise you 99% of the time, and there's always 1% where it's not going to happen. They are nervous, concerned. They're going to be relieved that you reached out to them. Um, find somebody who you're most comfortable with. Maybe it's, you know, the person at the grocery store that you see every day. You know, it doesn't have to be a family member, but find somebody that you feel you're able to be vulnerable with just so that you can feel what it's like to have a connection outside of this bubble that you have been in for so unbelievably long. Um, and that's where the kind of the boundaries come in place and things like that. So that's what I would say. 
Thank you so much. They're amazing. And where's the best place? Where's the most? Where do you hang out the most? Where's the best place for our audience to find mm-hmm. you? Um, I post a lot on Instagram, um, Dr. Z Psychologist, and on TikTok, same Dr. Z Psychologist. Uh, my website, I have a bunch of resources on there, articles, um, books, and other websites. Um, and that's drjamiezuckerman.com. I have workshops on there. Um, and yeah. That's where you can find me. Amazing. We'll have that, all of those in the show notes. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Oh, this it's is great. such thank a you. fascinating topic. And to thank you for your time and energy. really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please click on share show with your friends to help make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to get involved is to click on follow show or leave a review on iTunes so that we can give you a shout out on the show. If you have been a long time listener of the show, you know we are big on delivering content that is valuable for you. Content that will address your pain points. So if you have any questions or ideas for a podcast show, please reach out and we will create the content to meet your needs. Yes, you heard right. If you have topics, themes or special guests that you want to hear from, please send us a note to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will create a show especially for you. Wherever you are in the world, sending you love, blessings and peace. Namaste. Namaste.